0: This is episode 10 with Donna Litt, co-founder and COO of Kite. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Donna Litt is a co-founder and COO at Kite a B2B AI platform that serves as an intelligent sales coach. Before Kite, Donna co-founded TribeHR, which was acquired by NetSuite in 2013. In this episode, I talk with Donna about her experience growing up in a mixed-race household, how her background in archaeology led to a career in technology, and what drove her to writing and publishing her first novel last year. Hope you enjoyed the episode, and let's get started. Cool. Thanks, Donna. Thanks for coming here today. Uh, Really excited for our chat. Um, Thank you. And I think, you know, one of the things that I was fascinated by when just uh, looking up more about your background is the fact that you published your first novel last year.
1: Yes. Yes. December 2017.
0: December 2017. So pretty
1: much two two years ago. (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually, no. Sorry. You're right. I'm getting my timelines confused. December 2018 is when we finally launched it. Yeah. And when it was ready to print. But the process itself took a lot longer.
0: And the book is called Where the Sun Sets. Yes. And what's what's the premise of the book
1: uh so it is a love story through and through beginning to end uh, magical realism is the category but it follows the life of vol and Bay who are a southern Ontario couple who live life by all the rules and when they reach you know the age of retirement when they're gonna live the rest of their life they discover that Bay is actually terminally ill mm-hmm. and so she's diagnosed with an illness that gives her about 24 hours left to live and that's quite traumatic for them so in that moment vol is magically granted the ability to stop and restart time mm. and so what he does is stop time and carry her to all the different places that were on her wish list uh, so that she can see them before she passes and what ends up being a 24-hour period for her ends up being a 25 year period for him in a time-stopped world wow
0: so, and talk about the process of writing and publishing your your first book
1: oh gosh um it's actually quite lengthy so <laughs> i'll go through the process and you can decide what you want to keep so I um, when I so I was at Tribe HR, which is a, a startup based in Kitchener-Waterloo. We ended up selling that company to another company called Netsuite. And a year after working there, I decided that um, I really wanted to take the opportunity to pursue something I was more interested in. And big company was very different for me than small company. So there was a learning curve there, and I decided that you know, wasn't necessarily the best fit. But then also, you don't really get the opportunity to be on the other side of an exit Mm -hmm. very often. So seize that moment to leave and pursue creative writing, but specifically in young, young adult fiction. So I wanted to write a story for my niece and my nieces who live in Vancouver. And (laughs) it's actually when I think about it, it's a little brainwashy, because what I wanted to do was create this world for them, where it had this kind of backbone of a narrative and then write small children's stories that that complemented it Mm -hmm. so that as they grew up me being in ontario i could give them something magical far away because i don't get to see them as much as i want to so i left to do that and wrote my first novel which was mid-grade which is you can think about grade four like Mm. nine-year-old ten-year-olds reading it and the first draft was 140,000 words wow and to put that into context, The Hobbit is about 90,000 words. So no <laughs> grade four child is going to read a book of that length. So um, I realized really quickly, it, I mean, I loved the story, I loved writing it, but it wasn't the the thing that I wanted to move forward with publication. And, and in that process, uh, what I learned is, you know, coming from startup tech land, you take a very, there's a very privileged approach to building product. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of access, there's a lot of assumptions and building relationships and getting feedback from users. And so a lot of what I had learned from a product perspective, I applied to writing. And the actual act of creating that story was very much a product building process for me. So I was bolting things together, You know, I'd never written something like that before. And I learned a lot in that process. And by the time I'd come out the other side, I definitely did what they say you should never do, which is pitch it immediately to authors <laughs> or to literary agents. Rather, you write a query letter and you sit and you wait for feedback and, and you, you know, you don't wait for someone to land in your lap. You mm. go seek them, but you don't do it prematurely. And I definitely did it prematurely. So that full cycle, um, once I'd finished that manuscript and I started chopping it around, I very quickly learned that it was very immature. I needed a lot of work. Mm. But by that point, I decided I wanted to learn Differently, I didn't want to go back and revise that manuscript uh, to the point of publication. I wanted to apply my learning to a new manuscript. So Mm. I did that because it's just how I learn. You build a house to learn how a house is built. Um, So I wrote in that period of time five different manuscripts to learn what my voice was and what I could write and what made sense. And everything from, you know, a a novella, a 30,000 word novella, all the way through to kind of a full, I think the I think where the sunset ended up being about 90,000 words at the end. Um, But just iterating through manuscripts to apply those learnings as Mm. opposed to going back. So by the time I would published where the sunset, I had resolved to pursue two separate publishing paths concurrently because I wanted to know what traditional publishing was like versus new age publishing, which is, you know, you've got all of your self-publishing options. Crowdfunding publication is is like a subcategory of self-publishing. So I wanted to see what that traditional publishing path looked like. In juxtaposition to your self-service or your self-publishing and so moved forward where the sun sets on Inkshares, which was crowdfunding publishing and then a separate manuscript called social girl in traditional publishing and i just wanted to benchmark what that process was like um social girl is still a thing sitting in my on my desktop i have a bunch of revisions i need to make probably never going to make them because it's not a story that i love anymore mm. and i think that's just a practice of how i how i created it and evolved past it but where the sunsets I did stay in love with and I did ultimately get it published so so long in, journey. <laughs> in total you
0: created around five manuscripts yes and that was over the course of like two to three years two and so a half years yeah what's what's a process like for you in, in terms of like daily writing what routines or habits did you set up did you yeah. have more of a structured uh, schedule or was it much more fluid
1: a very very structured mm. uh, in the sense that I needed to I came from a world where you you know, you know put in minimum of 10 hours, upwards of 24 just to get something out the door. And so if I wasn't sitting with my bum in the chair for a 10-hour workday, I was inadequate mm. for better or for worse. And you learn a lot in that journey in and of itself. And my partner, who is also in tech, he runs his own company as well. He was out the door super early, back later in the evening. And, and so we kind of just set this expectation with each other that it would just be life as usual. We would put in the same amount of yeah. time. So... I would wake up, you know, make coffee, sit on my computer, my chair and and just write for the full day. And I mean, sometimes wow. I would get up and walk around <laughs> and, sometimes, and I mean, I'd walk the dog, which is great. But I was, I am got a little obsessive, I guess wow. you could say in that sense.
0: And did you feel like you were in some sort of flow state often? Like it's a lot, it's, it can be quite demanding, I imagine, just having to sit with the cursor blinking at you and a blank page to some degree. like.
1: Yeah, I never have the problem yeah. of not putting stuff out there. Because mm. the worst, that, I mean, sitting and overthinking, you kind of, you don't do anything. And so at least you try something. And then worst case scenario, you delete it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very grateful to have that be my problem, putting too many words out <laughs> yeah. there to delete, yeah. as opposed to being stymied. Uh, I mean, again, it's just part of my creative process. So I never really felt pressured or Mm, blocked mm, or mm. anything like i mean externally pressured to produce a word or anything like that but obviously for myself to get somewhere i just needed to get somewhere right and i didn't want to get stuck so i just kept going
0: very neat um so let's rewind a little bit and talk a little bit more about your background um can you just share a little bit more about where you're from um and the background of your parents
1: yeah yeah absolutely so i grew up outside of a small town in southern ontario in the countryside. So, Richard Stouffville is where I ended up growing up. And I was born here in Toronto. My dad came from Hong Kong um, just when he was in his early 20s. He met my mom in Toronto at a library. And she she worked there. She's always been you know a lover, a, a bibliophile, loves books, mm. knowledge hoarder. And he <laughs> <laughs> pretended he didn't speak English. And so by pretending he didn't speak English, he got free lessons from this like a <laughs> nerdy woman <laughs> and it worked out really well because he came for school originally, was delivering pizzas on the side, met a woman, they fell in love, got married, and then he quit school um, to eventually raise a family, mm. uh, which happened in relatively short order. She was young. They met when she was 17. He would have been eight years her senior. And then they got married uh, when she was 18, first child by 19. So they accelerated the first part of real life Mm-hmm. very rapidly out of the gate and moved to Markham originally and then ultimately moved to Witcher Stovall, which is where I grew up. And they, it was interesting because she she has European heritage. My grandmother on her side, so her mom is Hungarian, Roman Catholic. Uh, her father is Scottish. And from her background, she gets a lot of kind of your, your chip on the shoulder, mm-hmm. um, blue collar, You know european immigrant history there and then on my dad's side because he was he was the youngest in his family big family nine kids uh he was a police officer in hong kong before he came decided the corruption that he saw was not something he wanted to participate in Mm -hmm. and so left and then came to canada so a bit of a rebel in his own right so the two of them these two rebels you know married young kids everyone tells them they're crazy they can't get married in the catholic church that their mom grew up with because he's chinese Mm -hmm. they didn't want that to happen so they just did everything against the rules and that carried with them from mm. the time I was born. And so we grew up in Wichert Stouffville, five acre property. Most of it was forested. They built their own house. We built their own house. I would have been a toddler at the time. <laughs> and so have these memories of toddling around a construction site for most of my life. And I have a brother and a sister and my cousins came from Hong Kong and they helped build it. Wow. And so it, yeah, it just, it ended up being this really, unique experience, which I didn't at the time didn't realize it was unique. I think when I got to school, I realized that I was one of the few kids lived in the country and then one of the few kids who lived in a big house, but it was a house that we built. Mm -hmm. And so there was it was definitely a process of discovery, of figuring out, you know, where that mapped in relation to what other people's experiences were. But ultimately, uh, growing up in Whitchurch Stouffville, going to school in small town, Mm. uh, Newmarket and coming to and from Toronto when the rare occasion presented itself. Uh, was the the foundation.
0: Mm. What was the uh, diversity like in, in school when you were growing up?
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. When I think about it, I think I found, I found diversity. I sought it out. Mm. Um, ultimately, growing up in the middle of nowhere with just your brother and sister for company uh, or in your your wheelchair ridden grandmother, um, she was a huge fixture in our lives. She took care of me and uh, having your your dog as your best friend and your family <laughs> is pretty much your only friends. Yeah, that becomes your that was my status quo. So that and it was quirky. So then when I went to school, I found the people who were different, mm. or who were more similar to me in that sense. So I think I saw my di- more diversity than was than was actually there uh, because I was seeking it. And I, I say that because I've since, you know, had conversations with those who I did grow up with and. It was there was like one black person or high school, basically that, that kind of level, um, plus or minus a few. But we had Southeast Asian folks, we had uh, people from people from different walks of life mm. in Newmarket. Yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't as though it wasn't diverse. It's significantly more diverse than it was, uh, but it was you still felt a little you you still felt out of place. Mm. Being I mean, admittedly, being half Asian. Uh, in the sense that my father's Chinese, my mother's um, European, you get access to different communities, and different communities reflect on you a little bit differently. So I was friends with all groups, but friends with no groups at the Mm -hmm. same time, which is why that family culture was so important growing up, because they were the closest to me.
0: And what was dinner like?
1: Yeah, dinner (laughs) was always... So my dad was the consummate chef we always used to tease him about he should open his own restaurant but for food we we stuck with kind of our traditional Mm. meals uh beef and tomato rice if you don't eat your rice you're not allowed to leave um (laughs) so uh from from a culinary perspective we grew up very uh, traditional chinese where it became a little interesting was with my grandmother because she really liked potatoes and brussels sprouts
0: and this is your grandmother on your maternal side yeah yeah
1: on my maternal side so she grew up with a very different palate and she also had multiple sclerosis and so had some dietary requirements um which all amounted to being just deathly cooked vegetables mm. is really just what she liked but that was a very real aspect of growing up so we had always had a bit of a blend at, throughout the week mm-hmm. dinner time was always predominantly you know steamed beef all the the traditional traditional low yeah. low uh, effort foods but my dad is the one who took responsibility for making the meals, preparing the meals, mm. cleaning up after and, and making sure that everything got sorted. That was, and if heaven forbid you miss a meal time, <laughs> Not allowed, not allowed.
0: <laughs> and so the food would actually be a bit of both Asian and European, it'd be a mix. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Even though your dad was kind of responsible for the food.
1: So what would happen is sometimes we, so we used to sing this song. I'm uh, for a, uh, for my mom, it was awful. It made her feel so bad. And and now I realize why. I didn't get it at the time, but we'd say, like, one of these things is not like the others. And it was her. Because <laughs> she's, like, blonde hair, blue eyes. Yeah, yeah. And so whenever our, we poked her enough, teased her enough, and finally she's like, okay, fine, I'm going to cook something, it would be Western. Oh,
0: okay. And it would be, like,
1: potatoes. And then my, my grandmother would just always have a separate meal. She'd always have Great. separate dietary requirements.
0: Good. And then I guess in terms of your upbringing, did you have any... Stereotypical Asian after-school activities like you know playing an instrument or going to Chinese school.
1: It's it's interesting. I yes and no, because we we the the reality of our of just our upbringing and, and the way we lived is you know both my parents worked uh, full time and so we and we lived off in the middle of nowhere, which meant we bust to and from, mm. um, which really meant that my brother and my sister and I just spent a ton of time together. And at different points in our lives, because of just the age range between us, it's four years between the eldest and the middle, and then three years between the middle and, and the youngest. Seven years altogether between the eldest and the, and the youngest. Because of that, we all interacted with different um, mm. activities at different points in our lives. And so, by the time I came around as the youngest, most of the norms had already been dashed. And so, for my brother and my sister, they were my sister was in Kumon She they were both in air cadets, military mm. um, style activities, and for me, when the time came to go to Chinese school, um, I thrashed about and I refused to take the lessons. And I remember this very painful moment with my dad because I would I become the um, the quintessential sneak. And I used to an ultimately long story short. I remember this conversation with my dad where he was like, why don't you want to take it? And, And I made this big deal. I was pretended I was like, oh, you know, it's. It's not that it's too hard. He's like, Are you sure is that what it is? I was like, No, that's not it. And ultimately I had to say that it's because I thought the language was language was ugly and that I just <laughs> didn't want to learn such an ugly language, which was complete BS. I just didn't I had a thing with commitment and yeah. didn't want to go to the classes, and it was I hated having to go there. Um so I remember coming down hard, and that was pretty, pretty devastating for, for him. And I didn't, again, I didn't realize it at the time, but I we were. I was extremely fortunate with my parents because, and I realize this now. they there was a lot of traditional elements that my mm. dad brought with him. but because he was a rebel, because he himself broke the mold and my mother my mother as well, she is, she to this day has a, has a chip on her shoulder, and it's one of her greatest strengths. Mm. Um, because that's the case, they grew we grew up on the mantra of you stick to the plan till the plan changes. Mm. and why would you ever do something someone else has done when you can do it yourself? And why would you ever work for someone else mm. when you can work for yourself? And, you know, we had one rule growing up, and that was just do what you need to do. Just do it together, the three mm. of you. Figure it out. Do it together. That's it. There was nothing else that we needed to abide by with yeah. such rigor. And so because that was the case, if, if we had ideas that were a little bit different or contrary to what they had in store, it was – at times, a volatile conversation, but it was always a conversation because they themselves were atypical.
0: Mm. Were there any times when you and your siblings ganged up on your parents to be like, "Well, we all agree that we want to eat candy for dinner, so that's what's going to happen."
1: <laughs> yeah, um, sort of. You know, we actually. So, I I work with my brother to this day. Mm. So, at Kite, we co-founded. We co-founded it together with one other long-term friend, um, and. You know, I think that probably speaks more to our childhood dynamic than anything else. And my sister works with us now as well. Mm. And we just always, we always got along. And so it was kind of always like that because my parents would come down on something. We'd be like, okay, parents, you think that we're going to confer over here and we're going to come back with a different strategy. Mm. And so we did all work together and uh, to fight those kinds of fights. But our relationships with each of our parents was very different. My, my brothers being the eldest, he right. did have a more confrontational relationship. By the time I came around, I was the youngest.
0: Yeah. Your siblings <laughs> broke them all. They
1: broke them all and, <laughs> and you get to be, you know, the delightful favorite young one. That's ones.
0: great. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of talking about the importance of plans in terms of uh, how your parents were raising you. How did you figure out and plan for what you wanted to do um, even in university? Yeah. And, and your career eventually?
1: Yeah. So... Uh, Again, this is, you know, in hindsight, very fortunate to have had this mentality in a household so young. My folks never pretended that university would be the be all and end Mm. all. They never said you go to university to get a job or to get the job you want. Mm. It was you go to university to learn the skills that you're going to apply in life to figure out what you like and what you don't like. Mm. And because that was the case, university was always you have to go you have no choice, yeah. but you choose what you want to do because then you're going to learn the skills that you then apply uh, subsequently. So there was never a mandate to choose one thing over the other. There were strong recommendations to go into your traditional, I mean, everybody wants an engineer yeah. in their household, <laughs> but there was nothing forced. And so by the time I got to high school and was choosing what I really liked, you know, I put together a plan. I was like, one day I'll be a lawyer. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to take philosophy and I'm going to take know all these things and that'll amount to it and they were like okay cool you've you've got something excellent and then I was like oh well maybe not that and they were like okay just just go and recognize that what you do has nothing to do with what you're studying Mm. and I'm very grateful for that because I mean in my case that made a lot of sense because I was looking at the arts and what career results is always questionable yeah but um even if I'd been studying something else having that approach maybe not that explicit if I'd been interested in engineering I mean I'm sure if I'd been interested Mm. they would have said well you're probably gonna be an engineer But because my interests lay elsewhere, they were more flexible in that.
0: That's great. So the decision to go to U of T and study archaeology, that was really at the time what you were passionate about and just following your curiosity.
1: Yes. For me, it was a cheeky way to spend a lot of time outside and digging the dirt. (laughs) And every archaeologist I met, I mean, or thought about because Julie, I think I'd only met one at that point, just seemed super chill. And I loved history and storytelling Mm -hmm. and mythology and being outside and just, it it was a great blend. And who doesn't want to be Lara Croft at some point? (laughs) I don't don't know. So it was, yeah, it was very much personal choice. That's great.
0: And then when you graduated, how did you figure out what you wanted to do post uh, university?
1: So at the time I was studying archeology span to get into underwater archeology. span And and specifically I really loved, there's two areas that were very compelling. One, the ideas of identity in the archeological record. So how do you ensure that people's identities are being accurately assessed, represented, you know—what what is the data actually telling you about their, their stories and, and what does that mean about those individuals in their context? That was very interesting. But then also kind of the political nature of archaeology was very interesting, specifically around who owns the past and why do we have this sense of ownership and, and how does that transfer through time and, and ultimately today, these artifacts and these ideas and these stories have such a hold over our current narratives and that's a very political thing mm-hmm. and so those aspects were very interesting to me and a way I could apply that was in, in a nautical sense where you know when you think about ocean ways and, and waterways a lot of the rules and boundaries are very old and so archaeology in that context is was interesting I really loved the idea of, of who owns the past in a nautical context mm. uh, and so I was studying underwater archaeology didn't know where it was going to take me But that was the plan. And then in the summer of 2011, I found out that my brother in Waterloo was pregnant with his first child, or his wife was pregnant with their first child. And also at the same time, he'd been telling me about this crazy startup that he was just getting off the ground. And so I was faced with graduation, school, international travel, cool, path one way. And then on the other side, it was aunt, family, local culture mm-hmm. and, and I, I didn't I ultimately didn't want to be a postcard aunt. I wanted yeah. to be in their lives and have that be a part. And I think about my cousins and how much of an impact they had on me and mm. my family and my you know really in Hong Kong, a yeah. lot of my relatives there and just those memories shaped who I was. And I wanted to, I guess narcissistically if I think about it, have that same influence or at least be a part yeah, of yeah that story. And so I chose to go to Waterloo and and start or found Tribe, and I wasn't one of the, the the founders, core founders, but I was one of the founding team members, mm. and so joined Tribe HR as their as their customer success person, and, and see where that took me. Because in large part, family drove that decision. Yeah.
0: great. So then you relocated from Toronto, moved to Kitchener Waterloo, yeah, and haven't looked back since in terms of geography.
1: Yes, yes, that is entirely <laughs> yeah. true. Um, the transition was it was an interesting challenge because I had always been like Waterloo. Who yeah. likes Waterloo? And, and, and you know, when you when it comes from your family, you kind of, you love it, but you ignore it. And I'd always heard about the co-op program mm-hmm. being excellent and engineering there being excellent, which meant I was like, screw that. It sounds awful. Yeah. <laughs> so by the time I got there, uh, I started to see it for what it was. And it's, it's obviously just a, a different community and a, and a wonderful city in and of itself. And so it took me a little while to get used to it. But once I'd moved, there was, he actually my nephew ended up being born, I think it was 26 weeks, so very early, but in, in California Mm. when my brother and his wife were traveling. And so there was, you know, some complicated circumstances around that birth that ultimately marked and very much grounded me in Waterloo for at Mm. least the short term. So even if I hadn't decided to go and move there as a, you know, a big real life choice, that instance would have kept me there. Mm. Or it did keep me there as well. So I stayed and then I met who my partner is today and we put down roots and then we started another company. And so (laughs) I'm definitely there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so let's switch gears and talk a little bit about Kite. Um, For those who aren't familiar, what's Kite and what's the overall mission of the business?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's an excellent question. So um, it's a business based in Kitchener-Waterloo. We build software for businesses, specifically sales teams, so that they can engage with and meet buyers wherever their buyers are in their own journey. As we know, um, over the past number of years, the buying and the selling process has grown significantly more complex on mm-hmm. the internet and buyers are significantly more informed than they used to be. And so they talk about the buying process and it's not a process because it's not, it's not linear. It is a very messy series of touch points where every single buyer comes to a new product with a different level of information.
0: And this is specifically consumers? Uh, this is B2B. Oh, B2B, yeah, okay. Yeah. Cool.
1: Um, and so businesses buying business software, mm, yeah, essentially, um, have a hard time engaging with businesses who are selling because when you're selling you have a lot of internal measures that you need to put your buyer measure your buyer against Uh, and because that's the case what often happens when you're a buyer of of business software is you engage with a seller and they kind of force you into a process Mm -hmm. and it creates this very kind of um, this dissonance between the seller and the buyer and it makes it very difficult to scale it means that there's a lot of inefficiencies in the sales process there's a lot of dissatisfaction on the buyer's side And so our technology is designed to help actually meet the buyers of today, their needs Mm -hmm. in a business context. Um, and that's, that's what we're, that's where we came to, that's where we're at today. It's definitely not where we started. (laughs) We started back in 2017, really on the coattails of tribe HR with tribe HR. We wanted to build tools to help make employees lives better, more have more autonomy, increase transparency in the workplace, give people control over their own outcomes because, knowledge working is becoming harder and there's more data to work through to suss through and expectations and competitive pressures are increasing and so we wanted to build tools that you know allevi- alleviated that pressure for the knowledge worker and so with tribe hr we did that we created a social hr application which essentially put the ownership of your own performance management your own hr file in your hands mm-hmm. as an employee so if you think about the idea of taking your employee performance review to your next employer you probably care a lot more about it. Yeah. Um, We didn't quite get to that point, but that was an underlying premise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in executing that with Tribe HR, selling the company NetSuite and seeing what that became with Oracle, that was all very interesting. But when we came came back to the table with Kite at the beginning, it was, you know, going back to that original question, which is how do we help improve the lives of the employees and make them more productive and give them more control and more autonomy in a world that's just becoming harder to Mm -hmm. do this work in. And so we started with, you know, the idea of helping helping employees in that sense, and we, we started with a chat-based application where we learned just so much around what people were asking about in, in Slack, in, in uh, Microsoft Teams, for example, and we, we started to automate the redundant and repetitive questions, and that was our first kind of go-to market, and then from there, we just, we've learned a ton about our customers, mm-hmm. what the problems are, and everything like that, and, and where we've come to today is, is a product of you know, 20 months of, of incredible teamwork and, and learning. Um, but it's been—it's definitely been a journey.
0: So, is one of the main products an internal chatbot, if effectively, that helps sales teams answer their questions? Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, yes. In a nutshell, uh-huh. um, in, in April. So, we absolutely—the chatbot is a part of the application, but there's also a web application that mm. plugs onto it as well. So, the chatbot lives in your Slack environment, and you can ask it questions. You can query it, and it's connected to all of your data sources. Mm. So, one of our data sources is Google Drive. Uh, one of our data sources is Confluence, one of our data sources is Dropbox, et cetera. And so it unifies the search of all of those different applications. But then the web app itself um, essentially allows you to lay out your knowledge in, in these, you know, very personalized and beautiful playbooks, mm. which pull together your all of your training, your sales training, um, which might be your uh, conversational tactics, your selling strategy, et cetera. It pulls in your company information, which includes your product specifications Mm. and the things you need to know about your industry. That's great. Then it pulls in your process all into one spot so that you can actually have a a meaningful conversation with your buyer and you're enabled to Mm. connect with an individual as opposed to forcing them through some kind of abstract process that someone who instituted your CRM says you must do.
0: Yeah. Very neat. And the playbooks are automated or it's a combination of human and... Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, mostly human. <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> I'm, I'm nodding. <laughs> um, the mostly mostly human. There is um, we. So we make content recommendations, and so based on how people are interacting with the content, yeah. what's actually making a difference, what's getting utilized, you'll get the recommendations uh, on a weekly basis to then mm. add to your playbook to augment your playbook. But what we found is, at the end of the day, people need to be able to personalize their own knowledge to actually make it work for mm. them. And so, even when you do automate the generation of yeah. answers, insights, playbooks, it's it's insufficient. It's not enough. You yeah. need to put your thumbprint on it for it to make sense mm-hmm. and be usable.
0: And um, what is it like working with your brother? Obviously, you worked with him throughout your whole life. Yeah. Whether he's building house or uh, with Tribe HR, but can you just explain a little bit more about that unique experience
1: yeah yeah uh, absolutely it's kind of someone described I was listening to another individual who works with their brother two brothers and he described it really well it's like operating with two heads mm. in a way because you take so much for granted in terms of language and shared experiences that you really do get to make shortcuts in communication and you know where the other person's mm. strengths are and their weaknesses are and so you can run it a mile a minute and kinda of catch the balls yeah. uh, as you mm-hmm. go now, it doesn't always work out that way. Um, and you do run some risks around, one, assume, making too many assumptions. So when you're going too fast, you assume the other person has it because you, you're so familiar and then you realize that there's a gap. and then you mm. really sucks in that moment. Um, but then for the other people on the team, there is an element of risk as well because even though the two of you might have a dynamic, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody does. And so you have to make sure that you're bringing – you're sharing as much as you need to for that for people who don't have that same language, don't have those shared experiences so that they can stay on the same page. Right. Because you just you you do run the risk of, of letting that become um, exclusionary in a sense. Mm. And so you have to make sure that that's not what happens. Um, so pros and cons there. And I mean, he's the only person who I probably actually want to strangle from time to time <laughs> and, <laughs> and vice versa. And sometimes we just stare at each other and glare but we're both very, we both share language. We're both very open yeah. and there's so much trust and there's so much love there that it ultimately works itself out. And
0: and now your sister is there as well. And now our sister is there. It's a family affair. There. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's yeah. great. And you know, it's, I always, we've always literally worked together. Yeah, yeah. It was, do you want to build a tree house? Okay, yeah, now you do that, you do that, you do that. And okay, we'll go and do it. Or do you want to build a big life-sized duct tape alien? obviously obviously you yeah. want to do that okay this is how you do it or do you want to cut that tree down okay this is how you do it safely and we always had these you know projects living out in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. that were exciting for kids and we were pretty much left to our own devices because our parents were working and the only babysitter we had was in the house cons- constrained to her mm-hmm. environment and Scram- so we, yeah we had we a free-for-all yeah um and so we would just work together on these projects and that defined absolutely my existence and, and their yeah. existence. So now that she's back in the mix, it's like, well, finally, yeah. It took you long enough. <laughs> We're gonna come back here. Thank you. Now we can now we can do things.
0: <laughs> and so. how do your parents feel about this? I don't know if this is something you talk about over the dinner table or yeah. like, what's their thought on you know what their kids are up to? Uh,
1: they're happy. Yeah. They're happy. And and they're happy because I think as a parent, I don't have children, I have nieces and nephews. Um, and you might be able to, to speak to this, but you kind of just hope that they're going to get along
0: mm, and yes.
1: have and support one another because parents won't last forever. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, in lieu of being there, you hope that your kids have good relationships mm. and can take care. And so, and they didn't necessarily get that with their own. They have, on my dad's side, he has strong relationships, but they're so far away, they're so distant. Yeah. And he kind of, you know, pushed them away mm. to some extent. And then on my mother's side, they have a very different dynamic. And so that close knit dynamic doesn't exist. And so when they see it for us, they're very happy about that. And I think for them, it's it's rewarding because they made a lot of risky choices when we were young and they left us to our own devices a lot when we were young. And uh, a good example was, I didn't go to the typical childcare you know, up until, I think I didn't, I did go to kindergarten, but everything up until that, I was basically at home with my grandmother. And because she was in a wheelchair, it was as much as, you know, and I say that, but to put it into context, she couldn't, she didn't have, she didn't have mobility of her mm-hmm. arms. Um, she couldn't go to the washroom on her own. She couldn't get into bed on her own. And, and you know, when it was snack time, it was me running into the kitchen and preparing that for her and, you know, taking the knives out mm-hmm. and making, is this okay for you? And it was very much us taking care of each other. Yeah. And that was a risky choice because I would have been, you know, five years old, six years old. And they consistently made those kinds of choices. And so now seeing us work together, I think has just been a re- rewarding experience for them to say, okay, we may not have done it right. And maybe things didn't work out exactly as we planned, but we have this yeah. and that's awesome.
0: And I think there's, it's amazing just to see number one, there's obviously a healthy relationship. And then there's also the working relationship too. So. <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure her parents are really proud. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <Yeah>. Touch <wood. laughs> They haven't
1: kicked us out. Or yet. Yeah, yeah, They Kicked us out a long time
0: ago. <laughs> and then, kind of switching gears, you know, we'll wrap up soon. But um, I listened to a, a five-minute talk that you you gave on failure, and you talked about how it took you a while to find your voice, mm-hmm. having a liberal arts background, working with more technical people. Um, what advice would you have to to people out there who are trying to find their voice or who might be struggling with that?
1: yeah it's a, it's an excellent question and every single human has a voice it's just whether you feel as though you have the right and the permission to use mm. it and so practicing is really the only way you can build that muscle and when i think about the things that i have done physically that have actually helped me grow that it's things like driving myself more as opposed mm. to passaging yeah. it's not relying on the GPS, but actually choosing the best route based on all of the different factors that I have. Mm -hmm. It's very small, simple things. Like when you go on a walk with somebody, you choose the route and you be deliberate about it. Don't just let the route choose you. Yeah. And don't just follow somebody blindly, Mm -hmm. even though you're best friends. Yeah. Choose it, take lead. And those small micro decisions helped me realize that Everybody else is just as confused. Yeah. Everybody else, <laughs> yeah. just they might look as though and sound as though they have a voice, but guaranteed they're not thinking about it that way. And so it's when you put yourself in those situations where you are forced to apply and that you begin to grow a voice mm. or grow the ability to use it. And then at some point you realize that a group scenario occurs and, and there's actually something you want to say. And then you decide, well, is now the time that I say it? And maybe the first few times it's not, but at some point you learn what it's like to be on that side. You learn what it's like to say nothing. So why not try doing something different? Mm -hmm. And until you have, until you try, until you have that new data point, you're never going to know what it's like. So for me, I can't, I don't want to be prescriptive, but when I think about what I did, it was practice the small steps to get to the point where I was, where I recognized an opportunity to speak up and then, Recognize the opportunity a few times and then try it.
0: Mm. So being thoughtful, but also being somewhat bold and deliberate with actually practicing yeah. the muscle of speaking up.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, what about journaling? Obviously you're a creative writer. Do you do anything for yourself, like whether it's journaling or, or other activities to just help you refine your voice or maybe clear your head on a daily basis?
1: Yeah, I'm always writing. Mm. So I'm, I always have little, angsty bits of poetry on my phone (laughs) and you know little sticky notes here and there self-talk is i have probably six donnas in my head you know i've got past donna i've got present donna i've got future donna and i will pit them against one another Mm. and i'll say you know thanks past donna and then like (laughs) screw you (laughs) like current donna's not happy um you know and and i joke about it but definitely um it isn't that is a a type of journaling i suppose you could Mm -hmm. say but i i do have i do practice self-talk regularly. And that is probably the one thing that that is consistent, has been consistent. Mm. And if you can learn to treat yourself as though you are a friend that you want to help, then you're going to be so much better off Mm. than anything else because you care about your friends and you want their best, you want the best for them, you care about their best interests. And so if you can just, you know, accept the fact that, hey, maybe I would be my friend, then you're already, you know, Mm. so much further along in that process.
0: And is a self-talk just like an ongoing dialogue in, like <laughs> yeah.
1: throughout the day yeah. or is
0: there like a time that you carve out to do yeah. that? Like, what does that look like?
1: Yeah. Me? So it is fairly consistent mm. and it's not as though I've got like a voice mattering in the back of my head. That's <laughs> not it. But it's this idea of if something occurs that makes me feel, you know, frustrated or all of a sudden I'm like, why am I even doing mm. this? Or why does it matter? Those are the triggers for self-talk. And so yeah. my current track right now is um, is all about fortune, because I've been incredibly fortunate, I've grown up in a privileged environment. And, you know, whatever constraints have been applied to me, I've been able to, to date, overcome them. And so, you know, ultimately, the things that I want, I have. And that's wonderful. So it's have what you want and want what you have. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to see things go for them, have them. And now I focus on wanting the things that I've had that I do have today. And so Focusing on those two aspects where it's, you know, not just set a goal, but then once you've achieved that goal, remind yourself that you wanted it mm. and remind yourself that you still want it. And then if you try and you realize, oh, I don't want this anymore, then change mm. and do something different. Um, but I find that in those moments where it's it's a it's a frustrating experience or there's undue negativity, that's when that triggers that self-talk for sure. Super.
0: And I guess on that note, do you have any aspirations to write another novel soon? And if so, mm-hmm. what would the topic be? If you don't already have a manuscript,
1: line? yeah, just you know, moonlighting. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, it's it is one of those things that takes for me anyway a lot of focus, and, mm-hmm. and that means time. Um, but I do have a wonderful idea, and and I find that there's always it's the themes that inspire me. Um, and I and so I'm I'm really I'm really interested in this idea of. Um, how best to characterize it so you know the relationship between Hera and Zeus Mm -hmm. yeah um so I really love the idea that uh the two of them have had this very tumultuous relationship over time there's all of these myths that go to support that tumultuous relationship and Hera's you know she's depicted as as being very strong and and has done a lot but ultimately quite jealous and and Zeus he's a flanderer and he does things to deliberately make her jealous um but I love I love the the fact that that dynamic has persisted over long periods of time and I I want to dig into that dynamic but from a human lens so um, the themes that I'm interested in playing with have to do with kind of the waking world the dreaming world and you know what if there's a what if what if there was a world where they had to exist, each of those individuals, each of those God figures had to exist in different realities, mm. in different realms. So maybe maybe the reason those those dynamics exist between them is because they are prevented from existing in the same plane. Mm. And so all of the stories that we hear today are the manifestation of them being permanently divided and ultimately only able to interact between human figures. And so the way that plays out in the human figures is in jealousy and these very mm-hmm. very um, kind of mundane emotions, yeah. but it's because these God figures are actually acting out their own stories in these two different planes and humanity is the only place where they can interact. So, I love those ideas. I don't know if they'll go anywhere. Are I mean, at some find, point they'll go somewhere. I, but. Are,
0: you, are you actually finding time to actually do creative writing? Uh, yeah, yeah, from time to
1: time yeah. I'll throw thoughts down, uh, but it's always in piecemeal form. Yeah. And at cool. some point I'll assemble a thing.
0: Yeah. But. Your next sabbatical. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's <laughs> exactly, okay, come
0: on, <laughs> Cool, thanks so much. And I guess last question is if people want to find you on the internet, yes. are you on social media at all, or how do you recommend folks uh, stay connected to you?
1: Yeah, I was, this is very indicative of my current state. I would say LinkedIn, yeah. <laughs> um, because that's where I'm most active yeah. currently. Uh, in the past, I blogged a lot. I mm-hmm. have ter- ter- turned most of my writing inward as opposed mm-hmm. to outwards. So, um, that for the, for the most part is where I am
0: living on the internet. Cool. Thanks so much for joining. Thank Thanks you. Thanks, Donna. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.